to go with us to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 20. We started this chapter last week, and we're going to get through another portion of it today. And uh, last week we um, we got done uh, early last week, and um, uh, I fear that will not be the case today. Uh, anyway, but no, we, we got start. I think we just had a little less transitions because we still had about the same length of time in the text, but uh, I just want to be sensitive to that because I know we have food downstairs waiting on us. And um, Acts chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 17 to the end of the chapter today, but I think we're going to make it to about verse 27 because of time, but uh, we'll pick up next week with that. Uh, we're calling this Paul's Fight Song, and this is the second part of that. And so we are there in Acts chapter 20, we'll begin reading in verse 17, I want to encourage you to follow along in your copy of God's Word, where it says this. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials that happened to be through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and how, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the, the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care or shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's gold or silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping in the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would see his face, they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. 
This is God's word. Father, we ask that you would teach us now from your word. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 17 of Acts chapter 20 starts a speech of Paul's to a particular group of people, leaders in the church at Ephesus that he'd called to assemble to travel the 30 miles down from Ephesus down to Miletus where he met them. He didn't want to go and have a full meeting there because he was hurrying on his way to get to Jerusalem uh, for, for the festival, but for the Pentecost, but also to take the uh, meal, uh, sorry, the offering to the church there, the benevolence offering there to them. And he, he goes and he gives this summation of his life and his ministry and kind of the end result. But he, I really like, uh, and I want to, what keeps popping out to me is in verse 27, where he says, I have not considered myself of value to myself, that my purpose is to finish my course, the ministry will receive with joy. He says, my only aim, another translation of that, is to finish the race. That he has this one goal, this charge, this character. I don't count my life dear to myself. I want to finish my course with joy. I have one aim, one purpose, one goal, kind of a summation, a driving force, a single focus, a one passion, a one ambition, one to please. He knew that his call wasn't to reach everyone, or to do everything, to do every job, but there was one thing God had called him to do. And he set that. And um, as I mentioned this the week before last, I was studying about this, and I was listening to some music, and uh, the, the, the um, piano guys have this mashup where they mash up Amazing Grace with the song Fight Song. And I was thinking, this is kind of Paul's fight song, the, the, his song that kind of drove him, kind of that song that kind of got him going, was i got to finish this task that I've been given. And we talked about that last week, how he had an encouraging example, he had a team ministry, and then we saw that episode where Eutychus is, falls asleep and falls out the window and then he's revived. And I, well, I love, there's a little bit of funny in it. There's humor in it. You've got to find humor in things. That Paul goes down, says, all right, and, they, and, and Eutychus is revived. And the next thing the text says is that Paul just keeps talking. It's like he's just going to like wipe the dead off of him and keep preaching, right? You know, it's just like, here we go. And it's like, there's just something funny about that. Anyway, but so, so, we're, so we're here, and we, but we too, we often get derailed from our goal in life. Uh, we, we, we let pain or criticism or fatigue or worry or divided hearts keep us from following up with our fight song, as it were, and keep going with what God would have for us. And so the big idea that I have for us today, following up from last week, is that we need to have an all-consuming goal, something that drives us. And so, um, and so he talks in this speech that he starts here. Now, I want you to note that this is the only speech that Paul gives in the book of Acts that's actually addressed to Christians and to the church. Uh, he had given speeches to the Jews and God-fearers, uh, those that were Gentiles that had kind of quasi-proselytized at least uh, into the Jewish fold in some way. Uh, see that in Acts chapter 13. We saw that he had given a speech to those pagan Gentiles at Mars Hill uh, and, and an evangelistic type speeches. But this is his first speech in Acts to um, church leaders. 
to Christians in general here. And the, he, this is kind of a parallel also to what he does in the beginning of Philippians, kind of giving a defense of his own character and his ministry and a summation of that. Um, so this talk that he gives to leaders at the church at, from Ephesus is divided up in two parts, uh, Paul's character and then Paul's charge to them. So he talks about his life, his ministry, and then his charge to them when we get to verse 28. Um, and then, um, so this is really kind of an easy, uh, an odd outline. Uh, his speech has two parts, his relationship with those at Ephesus and how he ministered to them, his plans for the future, and then what plans and charge he would have for them after he would leave. So we want to start off where the text does in verse 17, where he says here, he says on it, he's there and he calls for the elders at the church at Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And so the first thing that we need to do is identify who these men are, not necessarily their names, but what their role is. They are elders of the church at Ephesus. Now, these have been ones that when the founding of the church and the three years that Paul had spent here in this third missionary journey, he spent the bulk of the time at Ephesus, he'd established that. Later on, he talks to Timothy about um, establishing elders at this church particularly. And so it immediately raises some questions for us about the nature of what the New Testament teaches about government and church structures, or the technical word about church polity. Well, that has nothing to do with dentures. Has nothing to, it's about how churches structure themselves. Um, now, some time ago, we went through a topical series on the church and structures of leadership and things like that, but many of you weren't here, and so because I have a tendency to repeat myself anyway, I wanted to kind of highlight some things from that. So you might ask, as I was actually talking to someone this past week, uh, they were talking about why there's so many different denominations, and it seems like Christianity is just split up a bunch of times, right? That you have, uh, you know, Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians and um, Episcopals and, and uh, Bible church movement of the last century and non-denominationals, and in the 90s, non-denominational just met Baptists with a website, and, you know, you have so many different movements, so where do we get that? How, why do we have subsets with different labels, and one of the key reasons for that is because of the, di- the use of different forms of church government. Because the Bible does give us a level of freedom uh, when it comes to church government and gives us some clues, but it's not explicit, and we have to do a little detective work to see there. And so different people have different heritage, and as they're attempting to follow the biblical data in their own way to come up with how they ought to structure and govern church, and so because people reach different conclusions, it was best for those that reach similar conclusions to structure their local churches in the same way. And so there are three different words used in the New Testament to describe uh, the, 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 the teaching and shepherding and leadership office of in the New Testament church. And so I have a chart that I wanted to show you, and I'm going to ask them to put that on there. I thought this is a, a, a kind of a thing that dissects. And one of the reasons I want to bring that up in this passage is because all three words show up in the same chapter, whereas other words show up, and you see different, if you kind of zoom in there, uh, not, you can't, they can't on there, but if you kind of look in, you can see the different passages. That there's three different words used in the New Testament, and you kind of see there that they all kind of intersect in the middle there in this Acts chapter 20 passage where the three spheres uh, get together there on that on that chart, on that diagram there. And so, um, so the first word that I want to point out is the word uh, elder, uh, which is the word that's used here in verse 17. 
It's the word presbyteros. And you automatically hear in that Greek word presbyteros, uh, the word presbyterian. Uh, so the, these are those that would hold the elders rule or lead. There's not congregational involvement that the elders would rule and they would divide those elders up between teaching elders and ruling elders. And, that, and so they would see this as, so if I was reading a Presbyterian comment, commentary like I did um, last night, they said, oh, these are the teaching elders, not the ruling elders that are emphasized in this passage. So they would see this word elder, the presbyteros, and emphasize that. And often I, I'm going to argue that I'll, sometimes tendencies of one way or the other go from em- picking one word and not the other, th- the all three together. The second word that's used in the New Testament to describe these leaders is the word bishop. Uh, and you see this in Timothy, you see this in other passages, you see this later on, that he uses the same word for bishop, but there it's translated overseers, that you're to be overseers. And that Greek word behind bishop is the word episkopos. And you might hear the word in there, Episcopal. This is where the Episcopal movement would get this, the, the bishops. The, the bishops rule and are in charge. And so an Episcopal form of church government would be that of having bishops in place. And so, for instance, there's the Anglican Church. There's the American Episcopal Church. There's also the Methodist Church that would hold to an Episcopal form of government, the Methodist Episcopal, as they used to be labeled. And so uh, th- these would have bishops. And then beyond that, there are some churches that would add to those bishops, archbishops or cardinals, and ultimately uh, one in particular that you're f- probably aware of is one that would add to those bishops and cardinals, archbishops, and then a vicar of Christ that they would use the term pope for. And so that's the second word that's often used, that's used in the New Testament to describe these leaders in the church and then the third word is the word for shepherd or poiman, or and we use the word we, particularly. We see it in a noun. We see it in a verb form a lot in the New Testament. Only one time in the noun form, and that's in Ephesians chapter four, where it says that there's a pastor teacher, and where which we use the word pastor or shepherd. And so those three words, elder, bishop, and pastor. I'm going to submit to you my opinion, which is a historic Baptistic one, that those three words are all referring to the same office, but just in a different perspective. Um, And what's wonderful about this passage, as I mentioned before, is that all three appear in some way in the same passage. Verse 17, they're called elders. And verse 28, they're pastors who shepherd the flock, and they're overseers. So you see there in verse 17 and 28, elder, pastor, bishop. And when I uh, submitted to um, uh, be a candidate for the role of uh, pastor teacher here, I put in my doctrinal statement this phrase that I sent in 2014, that this role was complementary titles of elder, bishop, and pastor. The word elder signifies spiritual maturity and leadership, decision-making in the body, Elders are pastors and the verb form of their functions is shepherd. And the, the second term bishop refers to the means to watch over like a shepherd. And the third term pastor denotes the shepherding aspect of the office. Now, so there's two things to point out about these leaders, these pastors, shepherds, elders in the church. The first one is this, and we'll point two things. One is they are pastor, two, they are plural. And so the first is that they are pastors. They are to care and lead the church doesn't mean that they usurp over the congregation. So there's, we mentioned different forms of church government, 
Presbyterian, Episcopal. The other would be congregational, that would believe that the final seat of authority is in the congregation, and I believe that from the New Testament. So congregational became known as congregationalists, especially if you look at New England history. Um, and, and those folks also happened to hold a view of baptism by immersion, so they kind of got this label Baptist, particularly in the uh, New Hampshire Confession. A lot of the congregational churches just got that label Baptist put on them. There's still a few of them like that that would just be a congregational church. But for, so, so we hold to that, but that these, these are pastors. And so throughout the New Testament, the shepherding and care for the church was shared by this, these two offices of the pastor, elders, bishop, and deacons, and the deacons did it in a supportive role as assisted, that they are uh, elders or pastors who are assisted by deacons. So their job title, here's where we go, and we'll get into this a little bit next week. Um, their job title shows their functionality. They are to shepherd, they're to feed, they're to tend, they're to protect the flock. He says that they're to guard the flock from wolves. And um, so the image of a shepherd is often a shepherd's at the sheep door. And a sheep door is where the sheep come into the fold and where the ones that are leaving go out. And so they spend a lot of time in that. And so that's kind of the nature of the shepherding. Those coming in, interviewing, digging into new members, following up with visitors, things like that. That are leaving or missing and where, where have they been on what discipline or what not that type of be with following up on things. So a lot of times that's where shepherds spend a lot of their time is at the gate of the sheep door. And so these... Um, this is their function, and primarily, as we see the authorized version, that their function is the shepherding is, is primarily done in the feeding or the teaching of the Bible, and so preaching the word. But this is, the, 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 the names identify functionality, because pastors are not what is commonly identified in a lot of our, particularly American evangelical circles, as maybe being social workers or psychotherapists or facilitators or administrators or janitors or program managers or production engineers or entertainment producers or community organizers, they're to be shepherds. And so how should a shepherd, a pastor, spend his time? What should a pastor do? What is his role? The birds give us clues to what that ought to be. I um, heard about a situation where there was a church consultant that met with a church that was looking for a pastor and met with the deacons of this church, and this church had 12 deacons. And so he meets with this church, and he puts out, he, he asks them to share what responsibilities they thought a pastor should do with his time. And they listed those things. Then they asked each of those 12 deacons to put the minimum amount of hours per week that they thought a pastor should give to that category that they thought he should spend his time in. And here's what the results were, with the the minimum from just 12 men that were deacons at one church, that he should spend 14 hours a week in prayer at the church, 18 hours in sermon preparation, 10 hours in outreach and evangelism, 10 hours in counseling, 15 hours in hospital and home visits, 18 hours in administrative functions, 5 hours in community involvement, five hours in denominational involvement, five hours in church meetings, four hours in worship services and and the actual preaching, and then other things in the other 10 hours for a total of 114-hour work week. And that was the minimum. So how is this guy supposed to do this? Um, To meet just the minimum expectations of these 12 deacons. So if he was going to do this in... Seven days without taking any day off the week, he would need to spend 16 hours a day 
working. If he took one day off, then he would need to put in 19-hour days for those other six days. And remember, this is only to meet the minimum expectations of 12 men in one church. Can you imagine if you spread that out to the whole congregation? And it illustrates, and what's bad is I gave this illustration one time, I presented it to a group of people, and I actually had someone come up afterwards and said, and I, I, was, I, was, I smiled afterwards, but he said, no, see, that's wrong because he could do some of the same things at one time, so he should be listening to like a, a theology book on his way to do visitation. And so that would be doubling it up. And I was like, and that's a great example of the problem that you have there. And um, you just illustrated the point. Um, so, um, so what would you say if you were asked how a pastor ought to spend their time? And Siri would know that she really wouldn't know. Um, that was great. I love it. <laughs> um, so, but the words feed, shepherd, and protect, we see those in this passage. Feed, shepherd, and protect are the ones that, if those are the ones that we'd sum up with. So the first word there about these leaders identifying them, they are pastors. Secondly, they are in the plural. He calls for the elders at the singular, elders plural to the, of the church singular, Ephesus. He calls for this. They are a team. They are in the plural. They are a pastoral team. The plurality among those elders in a single local church seems to be the common view of the New Testament. So in Acts chapter 11, we see elders plural in a church singular. In Acts 14, elders plural appointed in a church singular. Um, in a, a Ephesus, with Timothy, the Ephesus, he is to, um, uh, to appoint elders in the church. Um, it, in Hebrews 13, that they are to submit to those, to those plural that have the rule over you. In 1 Timothy 5, the elders, plural, that rule well are worthy of double honor or honorarium, especially those that labor in prayer and the ministry of the word. Um, uh, This is um, in James. If anyone's sick among you, let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Now, a couple things I want to mention is that the scattered um, church in uh, Jerusalem, that, especially when James writes, this was a large church that had multiple elders, and they're scattered abroad. Uh, so two things that are different from the context that, uh, of the early church that would, than, than ours is that there is much more of an inner working between churches, and that there is a large house church movement that they're meeting in houses. So, there is, so I would say that the norm is this plurality, but there is an allowance there for that idea of singular or whatever. So you say, was this a new idea of a pastoral team? And I would say, no, it's actually something that we've actually been pursuing here at Emmanuel for um, going on five years now. In fact, the uh, doctrinal statement that I submitted here when I came to candidate um, I put that, um, that things about the pastor and, and then the phrase, in keeping with the New Testament example, I believe a plurality of elders in an assembly should be the normative practice or goal. And then in a statement I sent in June of 2014 about vision and goals and plans for the church in the category of leadership would be these things, that the church will be under congregational authority that's led by pastors who are assisted by deacons. And asking for the ability to bring on a youth and music pastor when budgetary funds are available. To make associate pastors full-fledged pastors and not considered, as our old constitution said, just the pastor's staff. 
to ideally ask if the school administrator could become part of that pastoral team. And then this statement, move towards a team-based leadership structure and away from the Superman senior pastor idea. This means bringing on associate and lay pastor, associate pastors and lay leaders along with them to help oversee ministries. And so this is something that is, I believe, uh, timely for us, and we see in this text and identifying these ones that Paul addresses here in this way. And then Paul, when after identifying these leaders in verse 17, he moves on to give a kind of a defense of his ministry. Um, there had been this vicious smear campaign launched against him at Thessalonica and Berea and Ephesus and some of the other cities. So Paul gives a response defending his ministry, but also what, the, what was the driving force and the calling in his fight song. So, we, so he uses these repeated words we see uh, coming out here. He says that you know, in verse 18, We'll follow up there. Um, he says, um, and when they came to him, they said to him, you yourselves know how I lived. He says later on, you knew this. And so when we see repeated words in the Bible, they, they strike. So he says, you knew how I lived. And then he says later on, he has another repeated phrase where he says that I know this about their future. I'm probably not going to see you guys again. So he shows the, the, the relationship he's had with them and then what he expects to them be at their future that he probably won't see them again. And then, um, uh, um, and because of what, because what he expects for his future of leaving them, then he gives that charge that we'll look at next time in verse 28 and following. So we see some things about Paul's calling. So there's two overarching things about Paul's calling that I want to share in the time that we have left. That Paul's calling is rooted in God's grace. He talks about, I received this of the Lord. I won't read that. I do not account my life to, of any value or precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. So he says two different things about this. His, his character, that he received this of God and it's all about the grace of God, testifying to the grace of God. He received this ministry from God and it's about testifying to the grace of God. So God, his, Paul's ministry is rooted in grace. And so it's easy for us to look at Paul and his character and ministry um, it, from, from a human perspective, because you're like, oh my word, how, who measures up to Paul? I mean, this, he's like Hall of Fame minister here. I mean, he's consistent, he says there in verse 18 and 19. He's humble, he's transparent, he's compassionate in verse 19. In verse 24, how, he's zealous. I mean, he's inclusive. He preaches to the Jews and to the Greeks that this gospel is for all people. He's not leaving anybody out. And these all qualities, and you say, well, this is the qualities, and you could look at this and say, these are the qualities of Paul's life, and you need to be like that too. And I don't know about you, but that's like really discouraging to me <laughs> because I'm like, I can't because I mess up because I'm like way under that. You ever been inconsistent? You ever been like not transparent? You ever been like not zealous and you kind of wanted to do something else? You want to do, so, you know, sometimes we're compassionate and other times we're like, oh, I kind of remi- need to be reminded that I love my kids, right? You know, uh, and you know, when they're all gooey and all that stuff, you're like, oh, I love this kid. I want to put it in my van, right? You know, and after it's like covered in mud, right? And, you know, and sometimes we're not zealous for the Lord's work. Sometimes we're zealous for our own comfort and our own ease, right? Um, sometimes we only, sometimes when we're talking to people and we know we should be compassionate for people, all we can think is lo- about is lunch, right? We're like, oh man, I just can't, you know, well, at least I can get a good cup of coffee or whatever, you know, or something like that. You know, and we're not compassionate for people. So be like Paul, have all these character traits in your life. 
crushing. But when you see that these are things that are rooted in God's grace, these are evidences of God's grace in life, it makes everything different. And so he received this of the Lord, and he testifies of the grace of God in his life. And so I want to look at a few things. He saw his calling as something he received of the Lord. And so what is your, so what's the summation of your life? What's God called you to do? What's God called you to be? What's like the one thing that drives you, the, the fight song that God would have for you? And because Paul saw this as something he received of God, it produced some things in his life. When you see the calling on your life as something from God, I mean, it is a stewardship. He's in charge. I'm not. He is, he is master. I am servant. I am slave. Paul uses that word servant here. He uses the word slave in other passages of the Bible. And because he sees this as from God, that his role is being a servant, not being the master, not being the entrepreneur. The church is not a startup that you work with. It is a stewardship. your, Your ministry that you've received is not like your gifting, your thing. It may be that, but it's a stewardship that God's given you. And we're to submit to it, and that produces the first thing we saw in Paul is a humble, a commitment to a humble ministry. He saw himself as a servant. He calls the church together in unity. He calls the church to be unified by seeing each other as servants. That we're to have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That we're to have the mind of a servant, as he said in Philippians. This is an assignment that he received, that we receive this assignment. And you know, when we have that mentality that we're just servants, he's Lord, it changes a lot of things. Because you know what? I I, I know I just need to do what I'm told. I remember... um, when Jamie and I first got married, I worked at this kind of factory that assembled food stuff. Um, and, uh, and I was like the second shift part-time in-school guy. And so it was like they had like 10 different lines that produced different stuff. And so every day I didn't know like what, where I was going to fill in, right? So like, um, so it'd be like, okay, get there in the afternoon after class. And then like, okay, you're going to be on this line uh, shoveling meat. You're going to be in this line at the freezer. You're going to be over here, you know, doing this. You're going to be this. And you know what? It was, it was actually kind of, uh, simple because you just showed up. Boss said, here's where you're assigned and you did it. And you're like, okay, well that's, that's where I am today. You know, that's where my assignment is. And when we simply see ourselves as, Hey, he's in charge. I'm the servant. He's allowed to tell me what to do. That I'm allowed able to say, you know what? My assignment today is to do this, and this is what I'm going to do. And it produces a humility in us. But it's not about us. It's about him. He's Lord. We're servant. Second thing it produced in him seeing God's grace and seeing this ministry as something he received of God was it produced a perseverance through hardships. He says that I did this serving the Lord, verse 19, with humility and with tears and with trials that happened. So he had all these plots and smear campaigns and things from the Jews and others. But because he received this of the Lord, God, you gave me this. You called me to this. Therefore, I can persevere through the hardships. I mean, the fact that he had tears showed that he was emotionally involved with those that he was ministering to. Um, So, I mean, he's involved personally. Somebody say, well, hey, don't take it personally. No, take it personally. We're dealing with people. People are personal. Ministry's personal. It's a family. This is not a business. Leave your consumer mentality at the door. Church is not about programs. It's about people. 
it produced a, this receiving this of the Lord meant that he had a comprehensive view of ministry. He says in verse 20 that I'm not keeping anything back. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. Public, meaning in the spheres, also in the, 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 the uh, lecture hall of Tyrannus that we saw there a couple weeks ago. Um, and then from house to house as they were meeting in these homes, in these home churches, these groups. We could apply that today as like, hey, he did it publicly in the services and then in small groups and things like this and uh, those type of things. And so um, he says, I kept nothing back. I have a note written in the margin of an old Bible I had that to give everything you've got every minute of every day. I mean, he, he didn't keep anything back. He left it on the field. I mean, there was like nothing left. He went the distance with it. He didn't keep anything back. Paul was not some fair weather promise keeper in ministry. He was committed in sunshine and shadow. I mean, he was like more consistent than the mailman. I mean, he's there no matter what the weather is, in season, out of season, not keeping anything back, not only preaching the things. He says, I, I declared the whole council, not just the things they wanted to hear, the things that would make him popular, the messages that had cool, cool illustrations and great stories that they think he's great and podcast ratings would go up and shares or anything like that. It was he's preaching the whole council, the whole, every aspect of the, the scriptures, faithfully going through the Bible, teaching it there. He's not key, It's a comprehensive ministry. I heard, read about this person had written a love letter to this girl. And he was, you know, sometimes when you write love letters, you say these really flowery things like in a, um, like in a country music song, right? And so this, the, the, the love note went like this. My dear, I would climb the highest mountain, swim the widest sea, cross the burning desert, and die at the stake to be with you. P.S., I'll see you Saturday if it doesn't rain. (laughs) Isn't that how we are? God, I'll serve you. My whole life, I'm laying it down all on the altar of sacrifice. You know, we're doing all that, you know, just as I am. Well, unless the ball game's on, (laughs) you know, and, you know, and Paul wasn't like that. What are you keeping back? What's keeping you back from serving God with your life? I mean, could you say to your, those that you minister to, I kept nothing back from you. I left it all in the field. Everything you got, every minute of every day. To, could you say to your kids in your ministry, I, I gave it all to your church when it comes to finances. I, I didn't keep it back. I didn't shirk from it. I was consistent. I was generous. I was, support, I was praying. I was there. Are you all in or are you just half-hearted? God's grace produced this comprehensive ministry in Paul that he was all in. Not keeping anything back. God gave everything for me. I'm giving everything for him. I'm not keeping anything back. God's grace in Paul's life later on, it shows us here that it it produced this compulsion or a zeal for ministry. He's like, I'm not going to see you guys again. I mean, he's, I'm in. I mean, you could always hear the songs, the hymn, the phrases and hymns, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Or, and be thou my vision, you know, that 
the things of this world, the riches that I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. He's, he's zealous for these things. He's committed. And because of this, he, he's, he's more concerned about other things besides his own safety, besides himself. He's committed to a cause bigger than yourself. Are you committed to a cause bigger than yourself? Is there a cause bigger than you? Is there a cause bigger than me? And so he's able to say because of that, he, because he's had that heart that he has a clear conscience. He's able to sleep. And he says later on that he exercised himself to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. That he said, I'm innocent in verse 26. He's free from the guilt. He uses the watchman mentality from Ezekiel that a watchman, if he had sounded the alarm, even if the people didn't heed the alarm, he had done his job, whether they listened or not. And he's, Paul, has being, he's been being accused of being a coward, a freeloader, an opportunist, and everything else. But he would say, your blood's not on my hands. Clear conscience. Can you say that? He was committed to sharing the whole word of God, verse 20, 20 and 21, the whole counsel of God. He didn't only proclaim the things that they wanted to hear, but the things that made him popular. All, every aspect of the plan of salvation, not just the heaven aspect, but the judgment aspect and the repentance aspect and the lordship aspect of salvation, that Christ is Lord. And his calling was something he received of God and was all because of the grace of God. The grace in his own life and longing to see God's grace and he's able to say there that I want to see God's grace in you all as well. So because of God's grace, it produced a transparency in his life that he's able to say, I'm doing this in humility and with tears and things like this. And I want you to get this in the time that we have that Jesus was able to be completely open with everybody because Jesus had nothing to hide. We don't. <laughs> you know what I mean? We, we all have dirt under the rug. But when we open ourselves up, and when we do open ourselves up, we're very vulnerable. Um, and to be honest, we shouldn't try to drum up self-confidence because none of us have anything to really be self-confident in. But when we rely on Jesus and our identity in Jesus, it does give us self-confidence. Confidence not in ourselves, but in Christ. And it does give us the ability to have a level of what I call gospel-driven transparency. Whenever you're transparent, it makes you vulnerable. Anyone in this room or anyone that hears this that's in any type of leadership, whether that's coaching a soccer team or being a manager at work or a supervisor or a teacher or running a lab or any type of leadership role knows that that even though you can try to live above board, but the fact that you're in leadership, there's a vulnerability that's going to open you up to misunderstanding and unrealistic scrutiny. And then you're aware of some of those misunderstandings on the receiving end of, on the receiving end of false accusations. And Paul built in things knowing that those leaders in the church would do that, like about two or three witnesses. But anytime there's emulation and envy, there, in leadership, there's always going to be emulation and envy at work and in play. Nevertheless, Paul is driven by the gospel to be transparent with those he's ministering to. When our identity in Jesus is, is, is owned, we're free to just be transparent. Because the worst thing, you, the truth about me is worse than the worst thing you could ever say about me. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. And so are you. 
Um, Our identity in Christ is deeper than wounds, sins, suffering, and trials. Um, uh, Milton Vincent said it this way, that the cross exposes me before the eyes of other people, informing them of the depth of my depravity. If I wanted others to think highly of me, if I wanted others to think highly of me, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect Son of God was required that I might be saved. But when I stand at the foot of the cross and am seen by others under the light of that cross, I am left uncomfortably exposed before their eyes. Indeed, the most humiliating gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Golgotha's hill. And my self-righteous reputation is left in ruins in the wake of its revelations. With the worst facts about me thus exposed to the view of others, I find myself feeling that I truly have nothing left to hide. Thankfully, the more exposed I see that I am by the cross, the more I find myself opening up to others about ongoing issues in my life. Why would anyone be shocked to hear of my struggles with past and present sin when the cross already told them that I am a desperately sinful person. And the more open I am in confessing my sins to fellow Christians, the more I enjoy the healing of the Lord in response to their grace-filled counsel and prayers, experiencing richer, richer levels of Christ's love and companionship with such saints. I give thanks for the gospel's role in forcing my hand towards self-disclosure and the freedom that follows. So because of the cross, because of grace, we can be transparent. And so because of God's grace, Paul also had a giving heart. He says later on, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And you know where he's quoting Jesus' words from? It's not in the Gospels. It's something Jesus said that wasn't in the Gospels. He says it's more blessed to give than to, be, to give. So he gave more than he took. Do you have a generous heart? Do you give more than you take? What if we had a heart like that that gave, I'm more blessed to give? In your family, you would revolutionize your marriage if you just had the idea that it's more blessed to give than to receive. In every way. If we revolutionize our families, how we interact, if it's more blessed to give than to receive. How we interact with one another at church, at work, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And if we have that idea towards life that it's all about me getting, that, that the idea is for me to bank up enough money so that I can retire and enjoy things from me, then do we really understand the gospel? I mean, the, the gospel is that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Um, and so he, and he also has a desire for them to experience this grace. He says, I commend you to the God and the word of his grace. And so the compelling task before Paul was completing the task that Jesus had given him, the summation of his life, I want to finish my course with joy. I want to do this. The, what I've received and what I've shared, and he testified to this grace, that repentance towards God, sin against God, and faith in Jesus. That's an awesome picture of the gospel right there, and conversion. Repent to God. Receive Jesus. And he had this single ambition, this one passion. So do you have something that is your fight song, your goal in life? Something you're all in for, that you're like, I'm not keeping anything back. I'm leaving it all there. Here's what I'm for. You may need to commit yourself to Christ and the cause he has. You may need to believe on Christ, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul, we see this in Paul's 
character, a testimony, but it's all because of his grace. And so don't, when you see Paul, it's like, whoa, super Christian. It's like, no, that's what God's grace can do in any one of us. It can produce humility. It can produce consistency. It can produce this, this zeal to do something and be all in if we'll just bask in what Jesus has for us on the cross. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for this passage and what it teaches us, not just about the church and uh, your, your function in it, but, but, but what the gospel can do in, in your grace to, to help us to have a ministry like we see in Paul here. Um, it, it's, it's an incredible example. But Lord, your grace is amazing. It can work this. Um, it's the gospel of grace. Lord, help us like Paul to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That we testify to the gospel of the grace of God in our lives, in our humility, in our steadfastness, in our generosity, that being more blessed to give than to receive, in our zeal to pursue you, to do audacious things for you, to give our lives to a cause bigger than ourselves, and then to testify of your grace to others as we share the gospel with them. And Lord, we thank you for this example. Lord, we ask that you would uh, bless our fellowship time that we have afterward now. And I pray for each one here. I pray for the one here that may be struggling with their salvation and that they would repent to God of their sin, that they would believe on Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And Father, I pray for the Christian here that is, is struggling, that they are half-hearted. I pray that the conviction that they might feel now, that they would see that as a gift of you, gift from you that would guide them to just laying it down and, 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 and not keeping anything back. That you wouldn't placate this and divided hearts and divided loyalties. That we would just commit to a cause bigger than self, bigger and last longer than all of the, the riches of this world and the pleasures of this world and the, um, what we would consider the, 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 the pride and uh, what people would think of us, but we give it all to the cause of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.